Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Mate, I'm in trouble. What have you done? Throughout lockdown, I worked out yesterday that I have painted um, 32 paintings. And, and we've obviously put out a bunch of podcast episodes. I've done my wrist in and I can't paint and I'm, I'm lost. Um, so I thought... I could have some, How bad is your some free counselling from you. Is it like really bad? <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. Like, I don't know what's wrong with it. It's swollen and red. Um, and I've Googled like all carpal tunnel syndrome, which it doesn't seem to be carpal because that seems to be the other side of the wrist. Um, and it doesn't seem okay. to be, I don't know. There, there's like a million things online of what it could be. Um, I've literally got an yeah. ice pack on it right now. Ice pack really works. It'll be information. So... This is becoming like a doctor talk now, but um, I'd take some ibuprofen because that'll reduce the inflammation and put some ice on it and just like, just rest it. Because every time you move it, like just, it's better to rest it for two days and then be able to use it in, on the third day rather than it be slightly bad and annoy you for like the next month. I, I know that that's the sensible answer and that's what I've been telling myself, but do you know how fucking hard it is? Because I like, I can... I can just grip my teeth and go through it, but I know that that will screw me up. But I just, I like, I want to be painting. I, I've got myself into, like we always talk about habits. Like I have conditioned myself to get up at half five every single day. So I'm going to stop you here, David. What is your formula for success? Consistency plus patience equals success. So you've got the consistency, but now you haven't got the patience. So you need to slow down and be patient because then the consistency can come back and you can succeed. I know, like, I know, I know it's the right thing to do. It's just so frustrating because I was in, I was in the flow. I had I, like, I've been more productive than I've ever been. I was just like banging these paintings out. And while I paint, I research guests that we're going to have on the show. So I just felt like my brain is like exploding because I've been listening to all of these amazing books and interviews that that guests have done. And, and it was just a wonderful like pattern and then i woke up like yesterday and I, I can't paint this is probably a good time to actually just sit back and reflect on what you've done work out what went well and then try and actually stop for a minute and just look for new inspiration of how you can maybe take other elements and add them to your painting rather than just keep doing the same thing how can you like use this time to try and get some more inspiration that you could go forward with well that is actually really interesting because already I have been forced to sort of do that a little bit more. And I was thinking today, like one of my, like we've worked for Nike a bunch of times, but um, I've like, yeah. it's always been under one of our brand, like one of our brands. And I've never actually done anything yeah. as David Speed with Nike. So I I was kind of thinking today, oh, like I really would love to do something with Nike. So I was just thinking like of paintings that I could make that would like maybe get their attention. So I was sort of thinking about doing a series because a lot of my work recently has been like exploring like bodies and poses and light and dark. And I was thinking athletes have like such amazing bodies, like dancers, athletes, and just yeah. like capturing those paintings and just, I'll just do a mini series on, um, on athletes. So I thought that might be a cool. What would be a good thing to do is look at the last 10, 15 campaigns Nike have done 
and see what any common themes are within those works mm. because you might be like oh actually i do notice because obviously they're going to go for something that's safe that's similar to something they've done before but a little bit different yeah so if you can almost take a few things they've done before but then make it in your own style and like we've got enough connections within nike now that we could sneakily get them in the back door true well thank you very much mate you've uh you've sorted me out hopefully that is useful for for sort of anyone else listening um i know like people talk about burnout and and this is i guess this is just a physical man manifestation of burnout my body has just been like yeah you can't keep doing this like i I think it's important to like just make the best of whatever you have like i was talking to one of my friends the other day and she's got um, a problem with one of her arms so she's kind of so she's had to start using her other hand a bit more to do stuff and then just use like use her phone less and stop doing other things. Unfortunately, now she's just pulled her muscle in her other arm. So now she's basically can't use either of them. So it's like, well, shit, now I can't do anything. Well, yeah. what am I going to do with this time to make it productive? Because it's like, imagine if like you just lost the ability to use that in your wrist. What mm. would you do? It's almost thinking about like, what could you do to start moving towards something else? And then you might even find by doing that, that you learn a new skill or something else that then pushes you on even further than you would have done before. And it's always like, it'll be a happy coincidence where you'll be like, easy to kind of spot it looking back of how that progressed. But a lot of great things come from real hardships and when you expected them to go one way and they've gone a completely different way. Yeah, so I shall I shall embrace this injury. I think the important question is, can you play Star Wars Racer? Playing Switch is is uh it does hurt my wrist, so no, I've not been able to. But we oh, were both no. <laughs> we were both very excited when that game came out this week. So bit of a nostalgia trip back to our uh when we were children playing the Star Wars Pod Racer game. And whilst most people would say that playing on Nintendo Switch is a distraction. As we will learn from this week's guest, if you meant to play Nintendo Switch and you had that time sectioned off to relax and play Nintendo, then that's actually not wasting time. That's doing exactly what you wanted to do with your time. Taking a break is really important and you should schedule it in for yourself. Like I like to think of it like playing The Sims. For anyone who ever played The Sims, like you've got all of your little health bars that all kind of like drain down throughout the day. And I think it's really important to actually have a break and work out what it is you need to refill those little health bars. Because if you keep going for too long, you're just going to be that person like screaming up at you being like, ah, help me. Uh, I haven't played The Sims, so I have no idea what you were just talking about, but it sounded good. Interestingly, on that point, I saw a TikTok this morning that a doctor on there that was was talking about the difference between men and women. And she was saying, so before all the angry tweets and messages come in to me, like, this is someone else's words, not mine. But she was saying that you need to give men their time to play on video games and why they're not very talkative in the evening because by the time the evening comes, they have lost much of their testosterone and they need to be in a relaxed state for it to rebuild. Whereas women, their testosterone levels are fairly constant. So they are able to talk on an emotional level consistently, whereas uh, men throughout the day, it gets harder and harder to do that. So uh, if you're wanting to have an emotional chat with a guy, uh, don't do it in the evening and don't be upset when they switch off and start playing Nintendo. I completely get that because in the evening I'm always absolutely shattered and I definitely need some time to kind of calm down to be able to like really get into like a talkative mode again. Yeah, I'm the same. It's not a good time to get like a constructive or cohesive conversation from me because I'm just, yeah, I'm just mentally not there. This week's episode is, um, I mean, we we 
barely got a word in edgeways with uh, with Nir. He's uh, <laughs> he's like you've just got to like ask him one question and then he just goes. It's it's amazing. I think this episode is going to be potentially triggering for some people because because like we like we do obviously loads of episodes on loads of different topics and there's going to be some topics where people are like oh that doesn't apply for me this applies to every single person listening to it because we yeah, all get sure. distracted yeah this was one of those episodes where i came out of it and i was like oh i really need to like find out all of his principles and learn everything now because i do easily get distracted and then i feel like once you've acknowledged the fact that you get distracted and you know that it's an issue then you can you stop yourself when you go to get distracted yeah 100 percent. yes he is a very clever man uh near ayal is an author an investor and a behavioral scientist Nir's first book hooked how to build habit forming products was a huge hit in the tech industry essentially it was a guide for companies to create emotional triggers around their products so that users would become hooked his new book indistractable is a guide to resist distraction and take some power back over our time that's coveted by companies and advertisers of the world over. In this episode, we talk about distraction, time management, and Plato. And Plato wondered why is it that if we know what to do, we don't just do it. And so this was 2,500 years before the iPhone, before Google, before these things that we think are the source of modern distraction. Distraction has always been with us. Hi, Nir. Hi. Welcome to Thank the show. You. It's great to be here. Um, so I think our, our first question, and it's probably the most simple question, but it might be the most important question of the episode, is what actually is distraction? Oh, yes, that is a very good question. So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. Uh, most people, if you ask them, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? But that's not exactly right that the opposite of distraction, if you actually look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus, it's traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that move you towards your values, towards becoming the kind of person you want to be, those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not done with intent, anything that moves you away from your values and the person you want to become. So, you know, this isn't just wordplay and semantics. This is actually really important because it reveals to us that any action can be either distraction or traction based on one thing. The difference between traction and distraction is forethought. Anything you plan to do with intent is traction. Everything else is a distraction, even the stuff that feels productive, right? Uh, before I wrote Indistractable, I constantly had this problem that I would sit down on my desk and I'd say, okay, I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm not going to get distracted. I need to work on that big project that I've been putting off. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to get in my way. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. I'm going to get to work. But first, let me check some email. <laughs> right? First, let me do that one quick, easy thing to go my to-do. That feels like work. That's a productive task. I'm keeping busy. But what I didn't realize is that is actually the most dangerous form of distraction. The dangerous forms of distraction 
it's never the obvious stuff, right? If you're p- playing a video game while you should be working, if you're on Candy Crush or Facebook or Instagram while you're supposed to be doing something at work, well, clearly you're distracted, right? That's obvious to you and everybody else. It's the kind of distraction that you don't even realize is distracting you that is actually destroying your productivity, your well-being, and your happiness in life. It's the stuff that we think is what we should be doing, but really we've been tricked, we've been duped by distraction into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And so that's what I call pseudo work. It's, oh, you know, I got to check those emails. I got to keep abreast of the Slack channels. I got to do those quick things on my to-do list. And I do the easy stuff as opposed to the stuff that's really important that sometimes requires the kind of sustained focus that people seem to be missing constantly. And so that's why they constantly get distracted. It's, it's those things that, that, that they don't even realize are distracting them. So just as anything can be distraction on the, on the, the flip side, anything can be traction. So it drives me nuts these days how many people tell us that technology is addicting us, that it's hijacking our brains, that it's melting your mind. Stop playing video games. Stop checking Facebook. It's so bad for you. Rubbish. Scientific evidence does not say this at all. It's totally not true. And there's nothing wrong with it, right? If you want to go on Facebook, if you want to play a video game, who's to say that a video game is somehow morally inferior than watching a football match? There's no difference. Anything you want to do with your time is fine as long as you do it with forethought. There's nothing wrong with these technologies as long as you use them on your schedule, not someone else's. Again, the difference between traction and distraction is forethought. If you plan to do it, enjoy the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. And how is it you spot those things worth spending your time on and the things that aren't? For, for emails, for example, a lot of people would spend most of their day on emails, emailing people backwards and forwards. Yeah. Because if that's your job, how do you spot it? That's a, that's a terrific question. So how do we decide what is traction, what is distraction? Values. What are values? Values are attributes of the person we want to become. That's my definition of values. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So every day, what we have to do is to ask ourselves for the day coming, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And what we can do is to look at these three, what I call life domains. We have these three domains of our life. We have you, your relationships, and finally your work. So what I want you to do is to plan your day based on how the person you want to become would spend their time. Because here's the thing. If you don't plan your day, somebody is going to plan it for you. And you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have lots of white space in your day, shut up about getting distracted. I don't want to hear it. You know why? Because what did you get distracted from? <laughs> and by the way, I know I, 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 I got to tell it like it is. I'm talking to myself here. This was my problem. I wrote this book not because I have amazing self-control. I have amazing willpower. The opposite. I've always struggled with self-control and willpower. I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life because I've always struggled with this stuff. I've always struggled with procrastination. I always would prefer to play a video game over getting my work done. But now I don't need self-control. I don't need willpower. I need a system. And this system is what helps me live out my values, keep my promises to myself and to others by knowing in advance how I want to spend my time based on my values. So 
when it comes to the core value of you, right? I want you to plan in your day, how would the person you want to become take care of themselves? Would they have time in their day for rest, right? A bedtime. We tell our kids they need to have a bedtime, but are we being hypocrites in that we don't have a bedtime? Everybody knows that sleep is absolutely essential for proper uh, physiological and mental well-being. Do we get enough rest or do, do we talk the talk or we act walk the walk? If one of your values is, is uh, taking care of your body, do you value taking care of your body? Well, do you have time for some exercise? If that's one of your values, I'm not saying it should be, but if it's one of your values, is that in your day? Uh, is, is taking care of, of uh, uh, your mind part of your values? Is learning part of your values? Do you have that in your day? Time to read, time to meditate, time to pray, time to paint, time to play video games. Doesn't matter. Is that time in your calendar based on your value, the person you want to become? Then your relationships. Do you have time in your day to spend with your family, your friends? Is that booked or, or, or do they get whatever scraps of time are left over? And then finally, when it comes to our work, back to your question, there are two types of work. There's what we call reactive work and reflective work. Now, everybody's job has some balance of reactive versus reflective work. So let's say you work in a call center. Well, your job all day long is reacting to that phone ringing. You pick it up, you answer, you reply, and you hang it up and you wait for the next call. Your job is almost 100% reactive work. Now, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, let's say you're a, a software engineer. Well, your job is almost 100% reflective work. You're not responding to things. You're reflecting. You're focused. You need to stay indistractable for that time when you're doing your work or else you're going to make mistakes. Most people's jobs have some kind of balance between the two. But the interesting thing is people much prefer the reactive work, right? They like the emails. They like the Slack notifications. They like the, the phone pinging and dinging because it's easy. It makes us feel like we're being productive even if we're not. And it, we, it helps us avoid doing the hard work of thinking. Thinking is hard work and we tend to avoid it. But here's the thing. The people who succeed in the modern workplace today, whether it's marketers, entrepreneurs, designers, developers, what you make for a living is novel solutions to hard problems. That's what all knowledge workers do. We come up with, no, uh, with, hard, with uh, novel solutions to hard problems. You can only do that as part of reflective work. You need that time without distraction in order to do your best work. But so few people plan time to think in their day. So I can appreciate that you have to have time in your day for the emails and the Slack notifications and the meetings. I get it. But you also have to have time booked and protected for that reflective work. And that's the part that most people miss. So say you're working for someone else and like, how do you make that happen because i imagine like if you're working for someone else like if you work for yourself it's easy enough to block out what how you're going to spend your time but if you're working for someone else how do you allow yourself the time to be reflective if you've got quite a reactionary job yeah. it, it, in fact i think it's actually easier when you work for someone else because if you work for nobody uh there's nobody to to kind of hold you accountable you almost have to I mean, entrepreneurs have this constant problem of figuring out what do i prioritize every day at least when you have a, a, a boss, when you have a manager, you can manage your manager. And here's what I want you to do. So part of the strategy of becoming indistractable is about making a time box calendar. We talked about that a little bit about planning your day. The reason this is so important, the reason this technique 
kicks the ass of to-do lists. I hate to-do lists. And we'll talk about why to-do lists are the worst thing you can do your productivity, why they actually damage your productivity. We can get back to that in a minute. But the alternative technique that has been shown in thousands of peer-reviewed studies, this isn't just my, uh, uh, my uh, idea here. This has been validated in literally thousands of peer-reviewed studies. Making a time box calendar gives you a physical artifact. You can take that time box calendar that you made for your week ahead, you sit down with your boss on Monday morning, or you do it virtually, and you send them this physical artifact. And if you can sit down with them, that's even better. You say, look, boss, here is my schedule for the week ahead, okay? Here's what I plan to do with my day, nine to five, when I'm at work, here's how I will spend my time. So you see, you asked me to do this, you asked me to do that, here's how I'm spending my time. Now, you see this other piece of paper I have over here? I made a list of all the things you asked me to do that I'm having trouble finding where to put into my schedule. Can you please help me reprioritize? Why is this so effective? For two reasons. Number one, your boss will worship the ground you walk on. Anybody who has ever managed people will tell you that they are constantly wondering what the heck you're doing with your time. And so if you give them this information, they will thank you for letting them know how you intend to spend your time. They want to know, but they don't want to ask you because they don't want you to feel like you're being micromanaged. So be proactive. Show them how you're spending your time. The other reason this is so effective is that it destroys once and for all this terrible advice that everybody's heard ad nauseum, that if you want to be more productive, you have to learn how to tell people, what am I going to say? No. That is the stupidest advice you could ever tell somebody. You're going to go to your boss, the person who pays your bills. You're going to tell them no. You're going to get fired. That's the stupidest <laughs> advice. Anybody who's ever had a job knows you can't do that. You can't tell them, I don't want to do the task you asked me to do. Instead, you're not the one saying no. Your boss is the one deciding right? Because you've shown them, here's my schedule. Here's what I have time for. Here's the stuff I don't seem to have time for. Help me swap things out. You, The boss is now the one that decides what goes in and what goes out. And they're helping you reprioritize. They're saying, oh, you know, that thing that you plan to do, actually, that's really not as important as that other thing. Let's swap those things out. And so by showing them your time box calendar, this is an incredibly effective way to, to coordinate, to do what's called a schedule sync around how you plan your time and to make them aware of the importance of giving you that time in your day, even if it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe an hour of reflective work. Well, like the majority of our, our listeners relate as being creative people. And we had a discussion a couple of weeks ago with Chase Jarvis and he was talking about how you can design your life. But I think when it comes to a lot of creatives, when they hear words like system and having like a more planned, less scatty method of doing things, they kind of run for the hills. Why yeah. is it so beneficial <laughs> to implement actual systems rather than just living by the seat of your pants? Yeah, well, this is the difference between a creative and a professional. You know, if, if you don't have a problem with distraction, you're listening to the wrong podcast episode or watching the wrong video here, right? This is for people who have big dreams, uh, have um, you know amazing goals, have incredible potential, but we keep getting in our way because if you're anything like I used to be, I basically knew what I needed to do, right? If I wanted to write a book, I had to sit down, put my butt in the chair and write. 
If you're an artist, you have to do the work. If you're an entrepreneur, you got to hustle. You got to hit the streets. You have to do the hard stuff. But you and I both know that most people don't want to do that stuff. Not because they don't know what to do. We all know what to do. The problem is we keep getting in our own way. We keep getting distracted. And so we have to have a system in place in order to bring out our best selves. Now, why do many creatives bristle at this idea of having a schedule, of having constraints, of, of having a system? Because they're looking at it the wrong way. When, when, when people hear that I need to put myself on a schedule, what they're hearing is I need to be put on a schedule by someone else. And that elicits what we call the psychological reaction of reactance. Reactance is when somebody tells us what to do. They threaten our autonomy. We feel like our freedom is being uh, constrained. And the natural human reaction is to rebel. But there's a massive difference between being put on someone else's schedule, being told what to do, and putting constraints on yourself. That every artist, every real creative, every professional knows that constraints are necessary for creativity. The worst part about being an author is looking at the blank page. The hardest part of being a visual artist is a blank canvas. The least productive day is the day that nothing's planned. Constraints bring out our best selves when we impose them on ourselves. When I eventually have a day off, I, I then don't know what to do because the possibilities are so endless. Yeah. Right. I could do one of 10 million things that I actually end up doing zero. That's exactly right. And, and this has been validated in experiment after experiment that when you give people a sandbox, they make amazing things. When you give them endless creativity, we don't know where to start. There's this tyranny of choice where there's almost too many options. And we see this every day, right? When people, this is part of the reason why I hate to-do lists, why to-do lists are destroying people's creativity. Because most people, they get to work and they say, okay, I, you know, I, I heard some guru that said that I have to keep a to-do list every day. They get to work and they have 600 to-dos on their to-do list, right? And they sit down at their desk and the first 30 minutes are spent thinking, what am I going to do? I got so many things on my list. Do what? What do I what do I do first? Which is the easiest from that list to do? Exactly. What's the easiest? <laughs> Not what's the most important. What's the easiest? And that's exactly where we go wrong. So what's the difference between planning out your day and having a to-do list? So there's nothing wrong with keeping a to-do list if it immediately is transferred onto your schedule, but your to-do list should not be your your plan of the day. Why? Number one, because we have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what do we do and what people default to. You know, people are like water. We go to the path of least resistance. So we do the stuff that is urgent. We do the stuff that is easy, not the stuff that is actually important. Whereas when we plan our time in advance, we can sit down with forethought and say, okay, what do I need to do in my day? When do I need to do it? Okay. And so you can keep a temporary register of all the stuff you need to do, but don't let that guide your day. That immediately needs to be transferred into your calendar. Why? Because every output needs input. If you were to go to the baker and say, hey, you know what? Um, I want to order a hundred loaves of bread. The baker would say, no problem. Okay. I need sugar. I need salt. I need flour. I need yeast. I need all the ingredients, the input to make the output. Well, what's our output? As, as creatives, we need to come up with creative solutions to hard problems. That's what knowledge workers do, right? What's the input for knowledge workers, for creatives? What is our input? 
Two things, time and attention. That's it, time and attention. But almost nobody plans the input. We just expect the output to miraculously appear when we feel like it, right? That's not what professionals do. Professionals plan the time for the, 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 the input of time and attention. The other reason, by the way, that to-do lists are so terrible for people's productivity is that they reinforce the wrong self-image. You know, when I ask people this question, people who think to-do lists are the right thing to do, I always ask them this question, and I already know the answer. The question is, when was the last time you didn't finish everything on your to-do list? Okay, and I used to do this too. I, I will tell you the answer I would have told you. For years, the answer was, um, I didn't complete it today. I didn't finish everything yesterday. Actually, I didn't finish everything all <laughs> never, I never, never did. <laughs> never, you never finished everything on your to-do list. And so this is terrible for a few reasons. Number one, even when you have time for leisure, you get home from work, you just want to relax. You just want to watch some Netflix. You want to just play with your kids. In the back of your mind is all that stuff you didn't finish on your to-do list. So even when you have leisure time, you can't fully enjoy it. The second reason this is so so terrible for our, our well-being is that when you have that endless to-do list, you are reinforcing day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that you don't finish what you say you're going to finish. You're reinforcing and in fact accepting an identity of someone who doesn't live with personal integrity. You're allowing yourself to lie to yourself every day. You said you were going to do this and you didn't finish it again, loser. That is a terrible thing to tell yourself every day. As opposed to the right way to do things, the, the way to be indistractable is to throw away that to-do list as your, as your taskmaster for the day. And instead, by keeping a time box calendar, you only judge yourself by one metric. The one standard you judge yourself by is whether you did what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would do it without distraction. You are not judging yourself by what you finish, right? We know that especially when it comes to creative work, we have very little control around how much time it takes us to finish a task. We're and studies have shown this time and time again, we're horrible at predicting how long something will take us to finish. And yet we keep these to-do lists and if we don't finish, we feel like we failed. As opposed to with a time box calendar, when we become indistractable, we judge ourselves by the fact that we did what we said we were going to do for as long as we said we were going to do it without distraction, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, doesn't matter. Because at the end of every one of those time boxes, we're reinforcing to ourselves, yep, I did what I said I'm going to do. I live with personal integrity. I am indistractable. That is a complete mind shift from the old to-do list way of doing things. And best of all, when you come home and all you want to do is play a video game or watch Netflix, you do it without guilt. That's exactly what you should be doing. That now becomes traction because that's what you plan to do with your time. And let me tell you, very few people on earth have experienced the joy of guilt-free leisure. You know, we don't know what that feels like anymore. It's an amazing feeling that you can get by becoming indistractable. When you mentioned earlier about technology, it made me think of a photo I'd seen from, I think it's the early 1900s of a train carriage in London, 
where everyone was looking much as they do today with their their chin to their chest looking down because they were reading the newspaper and um this was an article about how reading was basically antisocial and this new technology of the printing press was going to bring around the destruction of the earth much as we as we put like kind of that onto modern day technology and mobile phones and apps and all of that sort of stuff do you think that it's universally a human thing to become distracted by stuff? How does someone start to, this is kind of a two-parter, how does someone start to shift their identity? Because from what you've just said, that it, it seems like identity shift is the most important thing. If you can give yourself a new identity, then that's how the change starts to occur. Yeah. So so to the first part of your question, absolutely, that distraction is nothing new. And, and I was shocked to find that I was expecting the solution to my distraction to be to get rid of the technology, right? Because that's what the popular media tells you to do these days, right? Facebook is melting your brain. Technology is addictive. Technology is the problem. And it's such a convenient excuse. And guess what? We've heard this before. People said the same thing about the radio and television and rock and roll and every technology all the way back, not just the printing press. You're absolutely right. They used to say the same thing about the novel. They used to say the same thing all the way back to the written word. Socrates said that the written word would enfeeble men's minds. This, this, this crazy new technology of writing things down was going to be a terrible new technology. So one, people have always blamed technology for melting our minds. Two, people have always struggled with distraction. Plato called it akrasia. Akrasia in the Greek is the tendency to do something against our better interests. And Plato wondered why is it that if we know what to do, we don't just do it. And so this was 2,500 years before the iPhone, before Google, before these things that we think are the source of modern distraction. Distraction has always been with us. It will always be with us. Uh, with us. What I will say though, that today, if you are looking for distraction, then it's easier than ever to find because we yeah. carry around these devices with us at all times in our mm -hmm. pockets. If we're looking for it, then certainly it's just a click away. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. That in fact, it makes it even more important to master what I call this skill of the century now. Because look, if you think the world is distracting now, it's only going to become more distracting in the future. It's only going to get more so as technology uh, continues to accelerate, become more pervasive, more persuasive. It, it, it's going to uh, become a more distracting uh, place, not less. Uh, so it's not a new problem, but we are certainly not powerless. The other question around self-image is very, very important because um, self-image can, can, can be used as a tool. We know that behavior change is identity change. That long-term, to change your long-term habits, you have to change your long-term identity. Uh, and so what we have to do is, one, be aware of false identities, that many of us carry all kinds of, of, of identities on our shoulders that really don't serve us. People who say to themselves, as I used to, oh, I have such a short attention span, or um, uh, I, I yeah, see there I go getting distracted again. Maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm not very good at this. And we, we have this identity, this baggage that doesn't serve us when we, when we tell ourselves this stuff, including, by the way, this myth that technology is addicting everyone, right? When you believe that, it actually leads to what's called learned helplessness. Because when you believe that you're addicted to something, now there's a dealer, there's, a, there's someone doing it to you, 
and you're powerless. So what happens? You don't even try, right? What can I do about it? The big bad algorithms at Facebook have me addicted. Well, what can I do? <laughs> and so we stop trying. So that narrative doesn't serve us. It serves the tech companies. But on the flip side, we can change our identities. How do we do that? Uh, towards the, the, there's four steps to becoming indistractable. One of the steps that I talk about, the fourth step, is around making an identity pact that we can actually shape our identity in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving it. How do we do that? This actually comes out of the psychology of religion, that we know that when people have a certain moniker, a label, a noun that they use to describe themselves, they become much more likely to live up to that identity. For example, if someone says, uh, I, I'm a devout Muslim, I'm an observant Christian, or even I, I'm, a, I'm a, a vegetarian, right? A vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have some bacon for breakfast. No, a vegetarian doesn't eat meat. It's who they are. They yeah. don't have to spend any willpower or self-control. It's part of their identity. So how can we use that? Well, this is why the book is titled Indistractable. Because indistractable people adopt a moniker. They adopt an identity that helps them act differently from the rest of the population. So yeah, we do some things that are a little bit strange, but no more strange than people who eat an unusual diet or uh, wear unusual religious garb. I mean, this is what it takes to, to change society. And in fact, we've been here before. So I remember uh, as a kid, I grew up in the 1980s, and I distinctly remember that in the early 80s in my house, we had ashtrays in our living room. Now, my parents didn't smoke, and yet we had ashtrays. Why? Because back in the 1980s, if someone came to your house and they smoked, they just expected to light a cigarette in your home without even asking. That's just what they did. You ha Everybody had ashtrays because you just expected to be able to light a cigarette in someone's home. Can you imagine if someone came to your house and lit up a cigarette on your couch without asking, right? You throw that, <laughs> that would be completely unacceptable. That would be incredibly rude. Well, what changed? Was there a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No, that's, there's never been such a law. What changed was our norms, our manners, our identity. I, I remember actually when my mom, uh, one day she got sick of people smoking in her house and she threw away the ashtrays and one of her friends came over and lit up a cigarette in our living room. And my mom politely said to her, she said, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you would like to smoke, if you'd be so kind as to go outside. <gasps> this woman was so offended, the smoker, was so <laughs> offended that she would be asked to go smoke outside. Well, today that's common behavior. That's just what everybody does. And we are going to do the same thing when it comes to becoming indistractable. So how do we get people around us to appreciate that, I suppose, because it's like, once we understand that that's what we need to do, how do we share this with other people to make sure that everyone gets on board? Absolutely. So the first thing is to become indistractable yourself, that we can't uh, preach while being hypocrites, right? So when it comes to yeah. raising indistractable kids, having indistractable relationships, uh, building an indistractable workplace, I can't tell you how many times I'm hired by a company to teach the company how to master distraction, how to become indistractable. And I come in to teach a workshop and at the back of the room, uh, guess who's on their phone sitting <laughs> on, you know, checking email? You think it's the millennial? No, it's not. You know who it is? It's the big boss. The big boss who wants the to show everybody, in, yeah. I need to check email all the time because I'm so important that your time is less important than my time. I just got to check email all the time. It's always the boss. 
right? And, and culture flows downhill. We need to set an example. Parents, same story. I hear so many parents complaining about how their kids won't stop playing video games. And meanwhile, they say, honey, stop playing Fortnite while they're checking Facebook and email. It doesn't work that way. We have to set the example for others. But there's also some very concrete techniques that we can use to help spread what we call social antibodies. Social antibodies is when a society inoculates itself from unhealthy antisocial behaviors by learning new norms, new manners. So for example, how many times have you gone out to dinner or lunch with a group of friends and you're all sitting around the table and you're having a wonderful conversation when someone at the table thinks, oh, let me just check my Instagram feed real quick. Let me just look at Facebook real quick. And now the conversation is falling flat because half the people at the table are checked out somewhere else. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You can't say, hey, buddy, get off your phone. You're going to lose friends that way. And frankly, you don't know what's on the other side of that screen. You know, somebody might be struggling with some kind of family emergency that requires their attention. Yeah. You don't know if they're checking TikTok or Instagram or whether their child is sick. So what do you do? You ask them with full sincerity, a simple question. You look at them and you say, oh, excuse me, Adam, I see you're on your phone. Is everything okay? That's it. Is everything okay? Because what you're, what you're signifying is that, look, if there's a problem, no problem, you know, go ahead and take care of it. And usually if yeah. they're really, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, my kid's sick right now. I need to go take care of this. No problem. They'll walk away, take care of it, and hopefully come back. And if what most of the time happens, nine times out of 10, when you say, oh, I see you're on your phone, Adam, is everything okay? They get the idea, they get snapped out of that, they realize that, oh, that's kind of a rude thing to do, and they put their phone away. So that's a very simple technique that any of us can use to, to help others uh, become indistractable, or at least become more aware as well. How would you help people stop being too hard on themselves? Because I think one of the negative patterns that, that people can get into is they, because we all want to do the work, the idea of achievement and and doing the the thing that we're trying to do is 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 really great whether it's writing a book or or whatever it is we're working on but we get distracted by the little things which makes us feel bad which we then in turn medicate by continuing to do the distraction which and it's kind of that that awful loop how do we get out of that and and i guess be kinder to ourselves yeah, David, this is a terrific question. And we kind of beat around this because this is the most important insight I think you can take away from my work over the past five years is that we tend to blame what we call external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction. But it turns out that most distraction does not tend to start from those external triggers. In fact, the leading cause of distraction are not the external triggers, but rather the internal triggers. You see, most distraction begins from within. And this is an incredibly important point, and it's the first step to becoming indistractable, is to master the internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. And you're absolutely right. Procrastination, distraction, it's not a moral failing. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply an inability to cope with discomfort in a healthier manner. So the first place to start on our path to becoming indistractable before we make our schedule, before we hack back the external triggers, before we do all this other stuff, we have to first and foremost understand 
what leads us to distraction? And so the answer to Plato's 2,500-year-old question that we talked about earlier of why do we do things against our better interests, the answer is more profoundly a base level question of why do we do anything, right? What's the nature of human motivation? Most people will tell you it's about carrots and sticks, that it's about uh, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Uh, Freud called this the pleasure principle. Unfortunately, neuro, or, sorry, neurologically, this is not true, that we do not do what we do for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That is not true. Neurologically, everything we do, we do for only one reason, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. It's not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's the desire to escape discomfort. Now, think about this common sense will tell you that physiologically, this is obviously true. This is called the homeostatic response. If you go outside and it's cold, the brain says, oh, this is uncomfortable. So you put on a coat. You walk back inside. Now it's too hot. The brain says, this doesn't feel good. So you take it off. If you feel hungry, you feel hunger pain. So you eat. And if you eat too much, oh, now you feel stuffed. You stop eating. So those are responses to physiological sensations. The same is true for our psychological sensations. So when we feel lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, Google. When you're bored, oh, lots of solutions for boredom. You check YouTube, you check stock prices, you check the news, you check Reddit, Pinterest, lots and lots of solutions for feeling bored. So we have to understand this fundamental truth that time management is pain management. Let me say that again, write this down. Time management is pain management. I have read virtually every book on the topic of productivity and time management and life hacks, and I'm telling you, none of that stuff works if we don't first and foremost understand this truth that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, which means whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, all of these distractions originate from the same place. Our inability to cope with discomfort in a way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. That has to be the first place to start. So what would you say to people who are in jobs or in situations that is super uncomfortable for them that they don't want to be in, but then they don't do anything to get out of it? Yeah, so there's really only two answers. So what do we do with these internal triggers? There's only two ways. Number one, we can either change the source of the discomfort. So if it's a miserable job you hate, can you leave that job? Can you find a different job? If it's, an un, if it's a, a, a difficult home life situation, can you fix the problem? Uh, can you take matters into your own hands and find ways to stop that discomfort in your life? But look, the reality is we can't always do that. That part of being a big boy and a big girl is that sometimes you can't escape discomfort, right? That life sometimes sucks. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn to cope with discomfort in a healthier manner. So that when we feel discomfort, and part of this, by the way, is to blame uh, the, the self-help industry, that the self-help industry these days tells us constantly that feeling bad is bad. And I'm here to tell you that feeling bad is not necessarily bad, that you are hardwired to feel bad, that we need to listen to that discomfort. It's trying to tell you something that that discomfort can be used as rocket fuel to lead you towards traction and a, 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 instead of distraction. So it's how we respond to that discomfort. Do we respond to that discomfort by looking for escape with another drink, with another show on the television, with one more scroll yeah. of Facebook? 
or do we use it to make us more creative, to increase our output, to do things that we know we want to do? We can actually use that as rocket fuel. It's not, it's not a bad thing to feel bad. We can use it uh, as, as, as Tinder for our creative fire. Uh, it's really about how we cope with that discomfort. And so that's what the first part of becoming indistractable is all about. I teach you techniques that you can use so that when you feel those internal triggers, you feel stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, you're not, you're, you're going to break that habit of impulsively looking for escape. And rather, we're going to learn tactics to cope with it in a healthy way that gets us back on track towards traction. What would your advice be to someone who struggles? Because we, we've talked a lot about the the smaller distractions, so be it email or social media or something like that. What would you say to the people who get distracted on a bigger scale. So in terms of like they set up a new business and then six months later they get bored with it and they move on to something else. Yeah. So, so distraction, we have to, we have to put down into the atomic level of our time, like minute by minute. Now, part of our schedule needs also to have time for reflective work, what we talked about earlier. So it could be that you spent six months doing the wrong thing. But you will only understand that now you're not going to do it for the seventh month if you make time to think. You know, so many people have no time in their day to think. So, so this strategy doesn't necessarily prevent you from, uh, from, from making bad decisions from time to time. That's part of being human, right? We need to experience. If you don't make bad decisions every once in a while, you're not trying hard enough. You're playing it too safe. We need to take risks. That's a good thing in life. But we need to take calculated risks. What most people do, they just go in this stream of life from one thing to the next, and then they complain 20, 30 years later that they, ah, shucks, they didn't live the kind of life they wanted. They didn't take the risks they wanted to take. They didn't do the things they wanted to do. They didn't spend enough time with their kids. They yeah. didn't exercise when they said they would. They didn't work hard when they said they would. Darn it. Where'd the years go? As opposed to an indistractable person says, you know what? This is what I want to do. I want to spend my time on uh, this way, this is what my day is going to look like. And one day at a time, they plan out that day so that they can live their life according to their values, according to the attributes of the person they want to become. Yeah, I think it's really important to set aside time to be able to look back on a short period of time and work out if you're still heading in a direction you, you want to go to. Because I feel like people are so, so busy these days that they just go absolutely head on with whatever they're doing. And they're just yeah. working, 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 heading in a direction. It's like, are you heading in a direction you actually want to be going? So I think it's really important to regularly give yourself some time to reflect on things and think, am That's I right. going in the direction I want to be? And if not, what? how can I adjust to go in a direction that aligns a lot more with my values? It, just to add, it's such a rare skill. It's It's something that so few people do, making time in their day to think, right? Because thinking is yeah. hard. Thinking isn't always comfortable. And yet so many people, and I used to be guilty of this too, until I started writing, actually, it's why I love being an author. R writing is how I think. It's how I process. It's how I answer my own problems. My books, both of my books have been uh, a about a question that I wanted answered in my own life. That's why I wrote the book, not because I had the answer, but it took me five years to find the answer. Yeah. And so that process, you don't, you don't have to write a book about this, but Please make time in your life. If you want a competitive advantage over everyone else in your industry, because I guarantee you 99% of people in your industry are not thinking. They're acting all day long. They're yeah, doing, yeah, yeah. they're reacting to stuff. 
and they make no time for reflection. And this is why they're just, you know, living off of habit. They're living on momentum. They're not intentionally living out their lives because they don't make time to reassess. They don't make time to think to themselves, wait a minute, is this what I want to be doing with my life? And by the way, this isn't some big visioning exercise. I'm talking about maybe 20 minutes a day, maybe 30 minutes a day, maybe an hour twice a week where you sit down and you, you kind of think about how your life is going or how your business is going or how your creative work is going. It's a massive competitive advantage. Can you multitask with it? Could you be having your thinking time while you're running or in the gym or in the shower? Or does it have to be more kind of deep work? Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. So there's a, a section in the book where I talk about uh, the myth of multitasking, and it's not what most people think. We've heard this advice ad nauseum, you can't multitask. No, you can actually multitask. <laughs> you absolutely can. We've heard a bajillion articles saying, don't multitask, don't multitask. It's not exactly right. Actually, you can multitask. We all multitask every single day. You can walk and chew gum at the same time, can't you? You can drive a car and have a conversation with your mate next, you know, that's sitting next to you, can't you? Of course you can. So it's all about the right kind of multitasking. It's called multi-channel multitasking. So what the brain cannot do is absorb two lines of input in the same channel at the same time. So you can't do two math problems at the same time. You can't listen to two podcasts, one in each ear at the same time. You can't watch two television I've shows and understand that. what's going on. It's very difficult to do. You can't do that because you can only absorb one channel of input at a time. But you can absolutely absorb information on one channel while doing something else. So for example, taking a walking meeting great way to get exercise, right? That, that domain we talked earlier about you, right? Getting exercise for yourself while spending time with a friend or, or conducting business, uh, you know, learning while you're uh, in the gym, exercising, listening to a podcast or an audiobook or a course. Absolutely. You can multi-channel, multitask uh, all the time. So to get very meta here, so your, your previous book was all about how to utilize um, techniques to make your business be, become um, sticky, I guess, like for people to return over and over again to your, your business or service or product. I've, I've noticed that throughout this interview, you've mentioned indistractable several times it, because it's, and it's a word that you've invented. And is, like, is that a technique that you're using to make that become a, a kind of phrase that then people will identify with themselves and then that'll be linked to you. And it, it like, what, like, is that all, is everything feeding into itself there? Uh, I, I would, I'll, I'll tell you if it works in about five years and we'll see. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, am, hoping, <laughs> I am hoping that this becomes uh, part of the vernacular. It would be great if uh, people forget that I invented this term and just start using it with each other. Uh, if, you know, I, you know, I will know that I will have succeeded when I text somebody and uh, who doesn't know I wrote the book Indistractable and they write me back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now, I'm indistractable. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I invented the term because I wanted it to sound like indestructible, right? I wanted it to sound like, yeah. uh, like a superpower because I really do believe this is the, the superpower of the century, this, this ability to control our attention and choose our life. And so I wanted it to sound like the term uh, indestructible. Uh, and and I, I, I really hope it, it catches on, that people can use that as an identity, just like, oh, I'm vegetarian or I'm a devout Christian or whatever it is, I am indistractable. Could you tell us about the bet that you made around writing the, the writing of the book? 
Sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, so there's four strategies to becoming indistractable. So basically what, what, if, if I could put the picture in your head so that I can show you where on this map, this technique comes from, but essentially, you know, I drew this picture for you, attraction and distraction. So picture two arrows, one to the right, one to the left, traction and distraction. Now we have two arrows pointing in to the, the, the center line. Uh, one is external triggers and internal triggers. And so now we have these four points, kind of like a compass that we can work around to have the four strategies to becoming indistractable. So step number one is to master the internal triggers. Most distraction begins from within. This has to be the first step, learning tactics to cope with these uncomfortable internal triggers. Step number two is about making time for traction. We talked about that a little bit in terms of planning your day, schedule syncing, uh, type of tactics around living your, your values by turning your values into time. The third strategy is about hacking back your external triggers. So all of those pings and dings, whether it's your phone, your computer, your kids, your spouse, anything <laughs> in your outside environment that takes you away from what you plan to do, what do you do about all those external triggers? The last tactic is about preventing distraction with pacts. Pacts are what we call a pre-commitment device. It's where we make a promise with ourselves or with someone else as a last line of defense, okay? It's what we do last. So I'm gonna tell you a technique that I used with this bet, but I want you to remember, you do this after you've done the other three steps. After you've mastered the internal triggers, made time for traction, hack back the external triggers. This is the last resort. This is the firewall to prevent you from getting distracted. How does a pact work? Basically what you're doing, there are three types of pacts. We talked about an identity pact earlier where you're saying, this is who I am, this is my moniker that I use to describe myself, my identity. Another type of pact is what we call a price pact. A price pact is when we have some kind of monetary disincentive for not doing whatever it is we say we're going to do. So uh, uh, so it took me five years to write Indistractable. And part of the reason it took me five years to write it is because for the first three years, before I figured out these techniques <laughs> that I described in the book, I was very distracted. <laughs> and I had a lot of trouble doing what I said I was going to do. It wasn't until I finally you know, found the, the four key strategies that I use every day of my life today uh, that I could finally get this done. And so I decided to use one of these, these strategies called a price pact when I found that after four years of research, uh, I had all the information I needed, and now I need to finally just do the work, right? Write the darn book. No more research. Just write what I'd learned. And so I sat. I learned about this technique that actually I, I didn't invent. It came from, a, from the most successful smoking cessation study in history involved a similar technique where uh, it found that more effective than nicotine gum or patches or anything else was making a bet having a financial wager where smokers put up $150 that if they didn't smoke for six months, they would get back, turned out to be the most effective smoking cessation study ever conducted. So I learned from that study. And, and when I found that I had to finish this book and I was under the gun, I wanted to really finish this darn thing. I went to my friend, Mark, and he was my writing buddy. We would get together almost every day and write uh, side by side. He worked on his book. I worked on my book. And one day I turned to him and I said, look, Mark, I read this really interesting smoking cessation study. I want to use a similar technique with you because I really want to finish this book. It's enough of the research. I got to finish this thing. I will bet you that I will have my manuscript done by January 1st, or I will give you $10,000. 
So I upped the bet a little bit from the 150 from the smoking cessation study. So people say, oh my God, that's crazy. I could never do that. That's terrible. Oh my gosh, $10,000. I can't afford that. Well, of course not. You wrote a book there, didn't you? <laughs> of course I didn't. I finished the goddamn book. <laughs> and so, you know, many of the techniques I describe in the book, like this, this bet I made, People, people get this bristling, oh, that's terrible. I could never do that. Or, oh, I could never keep a calendar. Oh, that sounds too rigid. I need to maintain my creativity. I need spontaneity in my day. That sensation that you experience, and I've been there too. I felt it exactly. I now, with hindsight, know what that feeling was. That feeling is the fear that you will actually have to do the work. It's the fear that I'm right. That if you use these techniques, you will actually have to get those things done. And that's hard and that's scary and I get it. But face the fact that these techniques can really actually get you what you really, really want. Because I kept my money and I got my manuscript. So it's the best of both worlds. To round this off, this kind of comes back to, to the beginning, really. One of the most important things that you've, you've said, so I'm going to quote you back to yourself as I like to do to guests. You've said, only plan the input and the output will happen. And I think that's that's my biggest takeaway from researching you. So um, if we could uh, just hammer home that point again, the only plan, the input and the output will happen. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, well I, I want you, it's okay to plan the output too. It's all right to have the dreams, right? The goals, the things that you want to accomplish. That's fine. Uh, mm. But don't measure yourself based on the daily output. Measure yourself on the daily input. Right. That, that having a goal of I want to write a novel, you're, you're not going to do that in a day. Right. You're not going to do anything great in one day. It's about consistency over intensity. And guess what? If you sit down at your desk and you write for two hours every day, guess what? In a year you will have finished your novel. But if you don't plan that time, if you don't plan that consistent input, the output will never come. So it's much more important to have that time plan in your day and measure yourself solely by your ability to do whatever it is you said you were going to do for as long as you said you were going to do it, you're in control without distraction. That's the key factor that we want to measure ourselves by in order to become indistractable. By doing that, we're all going to be able to achieve so much more. Myself and Adam can benefit from this, but all of our listeners, we're all trying to put something out into the world. And a lot of times we're just getting in our own way. So yeah, as soon as we can step outside of that um, by by just, yeah, just small little changes that, that are going to have right. a massive role on impact. So glad you said that. Sure. I don't want people to think away that, oh my gosh, I have to do all this all at once. No, no, no. Once you under, understand the four fundamental strategies, remember strategies and tactics are different. Tactics is what you do. Strategy is why you do it. And so strategy is much more important to understand these four basic strategies of master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. Sorry, we're getting some lighting here from the <laughs> it's starting to storm here in Singapore. Um, but once we understand those, those four basic strategies, we don't have to do all the tactics all at once. You can adopt small, small tactics from each one of these four strategies, little by little increasing your ability to become indistractable. You don't have to do it all at once. I think it ties all together, doesn't it? It's like, that's the same as everything we've just been talking about. It's like, you don't, it's about the input. It's like you work out, slowly putting into it and then eventually you will get a huge output from it. But until you start making the input, the output won't come. Amazing. So um, where can people find you online and where can they find the book? 
Yeah, absolutely. So my blog is called nearandfar.com and near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, you can find some more information about the book. The book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. To get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.